God deeply desires for us to have a flaming, hot, intense faith in him. A faith that moves from complacency to fervency, from decline to devotion, from apathy to passion, and from ignorance to wisdom. The Old Testament book of Malachi offers us the fuel for such a faith as God speaks into the lives of people who are waiting, people who are eager to see him act, but grow tired of the timing. In this conversation, we will hear God's encouragement to throw our arms around his love, his worship, his word, his creation of marriage, his coming judgment, and his ownership of all things. And hold on tight. Good morning, Trinity Church. <laughs> Thank you, Stevie. <laughs> I love that last song. All my life, you've been faithful. You've been so, so good. I love the phrase, goodness chases after me, races after me, comes after me. God's goodness. You know, it is so good to be back with you. Thank you for the privilege of being gone for a couple of weeks. We had a chance to go visit my oldest daughter and her husband and our two grandsons back in the great state of Montana. And uh, we enjoyed the local rodeo, got a chance to go to the state fair, Montana State Fair, do some fly fishing on the Gallatin River. Didn't catch a thing. <laughs> but I got the cast down, so that was great. It was a long drive getting there, but you know, you always know you're in Montana when you go into a grocery store and you see an end cap like this. I don't know if you can see that. Those are cans of bear spray. <laughs> it's open carry in Montana. Everybody out in the wilderness got them right there, you know. So that was kind of fun. We enjoyed being there, but it's good to be back. Hey, we're going to, uh, we're going to take our Bibles this morning and open them to the final book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I really hope you do, would you turn to the book of Malachi? Uh, if you're looking for it, it's right before the book of Matthew. Can't miss it. Go a couple of pages to the left and you're there. And for the next seven weeks, we have the privilege of working our way through this brief but amazing biblical book. So we've uh, titled this sermon series Intensity, as you can tell up here. Uh, and, and that's because this is exactly what God wants from our faith and our worship of him, an intensity. Uh, the word means to be fierce, blistering, keen, concentrated, rigorous, thorough, emphatic. So when we think of intensity, it's, well, an intense word, right? It's, it's got this power to it. I was reading recently uh, Malcolm uh, Gladwell. He has a book called Outliers. And in it, he talks about the intensity it takes to be great at something in life, anything in life. But what is the intensity it takes? And he points out that people, men and women who are in sports or in art or science or music, whatever the field might be, on average invest 10,000 hours into making what they do great. So if you break that down into days, what you get is five straight years, eight hours a day, seven days a week of concentrated, intense effort to become good at what they do. We oftentimes describe such people as single-minded or dogged or passionate or determined, uh, resolute, unyielding. 
This is what God wants from us in our faith and in our worship. Dr. Jim Taylor wrote an article for Psychology Today magazine. It's been a few years since he wrote it, but he talks about this kind of intensity with regard to the athletes who excel. And I want to read this with you this morning. I'll read it for you. And then I want to come back in just a few minutes and insert a new word into it besides athlete. He writes, motivation is the foundation of all athletic effort and accomplishment. Without your desire and determination to improve your sports performances, all of the other mental factors, confidence, intensity, focus, and emotions are meaningless. To become the best athlete you can be, you must be motivated to do what it takes to maximize your ability and achieve your goals. Motivation, he says, simply defined, is the ability to initiate and persist at a task. To perform your best, you must want to begin the process of developing as an athlete. Makes sense, right? And you must be willing to maintain your efforts until you've achieved your goals. Motivation in sports is so important because you must be willing to work hard in the face of fatigue, boredom, pain, and the desire to do other things. Motivation, he ends uh, with, will impact everything that influences your sports performance. Physical conditioning, technical, tactical training, mental preparation, and general lifestyle, including sleep, diet, school, or work, and relationships. So let's pause for a moment and ask ourselves, does this describe our pursuit of God? Would we use these same adjectives to describe our practice of adoring God, of loving Him, of serving Him, or obeying Him? Would we say that we are unwavering and staunch in our desire to worship God? Or are we a little more casual, off-the-cuff, spontaneous, and, and unscripted in our worship of God? Are we tenacious in our preparations to worship God on Sunday mornings? Or do we rely on that first worship song to kind of pull us out of our slump and miraculously elevate our thoughts and emotions toward God? Do we have a gritty and resolute longing to let God know of our love? Or is our approach to the throne of God more of a devil-may-care perspective, which, by the way, is what the devil would prefer, right? The answer is it all depends on our motivation. Why are we doing what we are doing? What compels us and spurs us toward faith and worship? So let's go back to Jim's quote. And I want to change one word. We're going to insert the word worship. Motivation is the foundation of all worship effort and accomplishment. Without your desire and determination to improve your worship, all of the other mental factors, confidence, intensity, focus, emotions are meaningless. To become the best worshiper you can be, you must be motivated to do what it takes to maximize your ability and achieve your goals. Motivation simply defined is the ability to initiate and persist at a task. To perform your best, you must want to begin the process of developing as a worshiper. Think about that for a moment. To become better in our faith, to become more ardent in our worship, we actually have to want to do that. And we must be willing to maintain our efforts until we have achieved our goals. He concludes, motivation in worship is so important because you must be willing to work hard in the face of fatigue, boredom, pain, and the desire to do other things. Motivation will impact everything that influences your worship performance. The book of Malachi reminds us 
that what motivates us to excel in worship is a rich understanding of the goodness and the greatness of God. Think about that for a second. This book we're about to explore for seven weeks takes us back to the character of God, his greatness and his goodness, and says to us, because of who he is, we should be motivated to be intense in our relationship with him rather than a bit apathetic or pullback or backwatered. This was something that the people in Malachi's day had forgotten. They had forgotten how great their God was and how much he loved them and what he had done for them. And that is something we also need to remind ourselves of this morning. So, before we dive into the text, and I want to give you a little background on Malachi because that is an important uh, aspect of how it's set into Scripture. Before we do that, let's pray. And let's simply ask God to help us in our faith and worship to become more intense in the way we respond to him so father we we pray that you will use this short tiny book to ignite us father in a in a huge and an intense craving for a deeper and a richer more expansive relationship with you father we will confess that life today is so busy we have so many demands on our lives. We have so uh, fast-paced a culture. We have so many responsibilities at home and at work and at school and at church and in so many settings that at, at times, Father, this does become a second effort for us. It becomes second place for us. And we just want to simply say to you this morning, God, we don't want to stay there. We want to become ardent, passionate, fierce, blistering, in our faith, Father. And we know that that isn't something we can generate within us. We are broken people. But it is something that your spirit can remind us of, of just how great and good you are. And in the context of that, God, we can grow in the intensity of our faith. So we, we pray this morning that this would be a good beginning for us. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Malachi is a hinge book. It's a, it's a pivot point in Scripture. It's an axis in the Bible. It's a point where we have to pause for a minute and think about the Old Testament is ending and the New Testament is beginning, and God has this message that flows through both. They are connected. So it's not only the last book in the Old Testament, it, but it also does beautifully connect the whole idea of an expectation of worship that is sincere and passionate and enthusiastic and humble, and it connects it with the New Testament's picture of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and it says, take what you learned from me, from Malachi, and bring it into that experience of following Jesus Christ. So in other words, Malachi shows us how to worship the Messiah well, and isn't that what we want to do as a church, is worship him well. Now, Malachi wrote this book in the mid-400s B.C., so you have to put your historical caps on for just a moment. 400 B.C., it was written after the book of Ezra, so after the temple has been rebuilt, and it's written around the time of when Nehemiah comes. There, scholars are divided in terms of how close to Nehemiah was he before Nehemiah, was he during, was a little, little after, but generally it's around that period of time, and the people of Israel have been in the land again for about a hundred years after their return from captivity. Now that's, that's really important. That time frame is important 
uh, to the story. Because even though the temple has been rebuilt <clears throat> and the worship practices have been renewed, something very important is missing. And the people knew it. And it was frustrating to them. What it was that was missing was, was God's visible, Shekinah, glorious presence at the temple. Now you remember back in the day of Moses when he built the tabernacle in the wilderness, Exodus 40, the end of, 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 the, of Exodus tells us that the glory of God came and dwelt on the tabernacle and in the tabernacle. Let me read for you that moment because this is what the people in Malachi's day were longing for. And it wasn't there. Exodus 40 says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Can you imagine that? Imagine if that presence of God was tangible here today in our church. And you could see the fire at night. Would that be something the people in the, in the community would just marvel at? Look at that cloud of fire over Trinity Church and all the other churches. Look at that pillar of cloud by day that, that guards them from the sun. Look at the presence, the Shekinah glory of God. This was also something that the prophet Ezekiel had foretold would happen when they got back to the land. Now, you guys know Ezekiel was the prophet who went into captivity with the, the Jewish people. So he's there in Babylon with them. 25 years into that experience, God speaks to him and gives him this vision of the glory of God returning to the temple when they go back. Listen to this, Exodus 40, 1 through 4. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me to the city of Jerusalem. And in visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel, set me down on a very high mountain, on which was a structure like a city to the south. And when he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, set your heart upon all that I will show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So this is his message to the captives in Babylon, 25 years into their captivity. Chapter 43 gives us the vision. He led me to the gate, the gate facing the east, and listen to this. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. The sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, Niagara Falls kind of sound, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and just like the vision I had seen by the Chapar Canal. That's Ezra or Ezekiel 1. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And yet, despite this prophecy, 
for some reason, God's powerful, glorious, majestic presence had not reoccupied the temple in their time for these people. And they're saying, what is God doing? Or rather, why was he not doing what he said he would do? Something was very wrong, and the people knew it. One of the commentators I read this week, his name is Peter Verhoff, describes their feelings. Their expectations of a glorious renewal of their national life after the return from the exile had been disappointing. The promised kingdom of the Messiah had still not dawned. Israel as a nation was not delivered and glorified. They still remained under Persian rule and were suffering from pests and plagues. The words of Isaiah 59, 9 through 11 seemed to reflect their situation. Listen to, to their heartbeat. So justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the, the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. We look for justice, but find none, for deliverance, but it is far away. Folks, have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever felt that God was not holding up his end of the bargain? in your faith or in your circumstances? Have you ever said to yourself in your distress, where is God? You ever felt like that? I have at times. As life's overwhelming circumstances just pummel us, as we struggle to keep our faith in, in moments of doubt, this is where these people are at. Have you ever prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and asked God to move and change your circumstances, and it seems that God is just distant, that He's far off. He's not really interested in your life and needs at the moment. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever said to yourself at a moment like that, well, fine, if God's not going to do something, I will in my way. If you've ever felt like that, you identify with the people in Malachi's day. This is what they were struggling with. But the real problem for them was not really God's performance, and it's not really our problem as well when we struggle like this. It's not God's performance. Really, it's more a problem of our perspective and our performance. Because the truth is, God has always kept his word. God has always kept his covenants. His promises have never failed. So the catalyst for change is really more needed by us. Our introspection of our own actions rather than God's critical declaration and our declaration of God's inaction. So Malachi writes this book inspired by God to help the people take a closer look at themselves. And it's interesting, as, as we go through the book, we're going to discover that the real problem was the people's awe of God, their gaping wonder at his might, their, their bold overexcitement at his great love and care. It was on life support. Their affection for God was downright miserable. And it all went back to their view of who God was. Now, there's only 57, excuse me, there's only 55 verses in Malachi. Short book. 55 verses, 47 of them are in the first person. In other words, it's a conversation between God and the people, back and forth. This conversation about intensity. In fact, there's a running commentary in your notes 
of that conversation in Malachi. Let me just rehearse it for you because these are the seven weeks we're going to look at. In what we're looking at today, chapter 1, verse 2, God tells them of his love for them, but they respond, how have you loved us? Verse 6, next week, God accuses them of disrespecting him, and they counter, how have we despised your name? How have we polluted you? The week after that, verse 12, God charges them with engaging in lackadaisical worship, and they respond with a tissue to the nose and a reply, what a weariness this all is, sniff snort. Chapter 2, fourth week, God tells us he will no longer respond to them with favor. And they react with this clueless, well, why do you not respond to us with favor? The week after that, chapter 2, verse 17, God states that they have exhausted him with all of their empty words and, and they're shocked. How have we wearied you? The sixth week, God calls them on the carpet for being distant and keeping back from him what is due. And they reply with this oblivious, clueless ignorance of how are we to return to you? How, how have we robbed you? And finally, the last week, God challenges them to examine their bitter attitudes and accusations that he's a skin flint God. And they reply with surprise saying, well, how have we spoken against you? Do you hear the struggle that's going on? They have no idea that their faith is completely without intensity, completely backwater, flat, insipid, lifeless, and God wants to bring them back to full faith. So we're going to put on, a screen, on the screen a simple outline for the book. It's in your notes as well. Four major chunks to the book. God's goodness is compelling. We're spending time there today. So we should give him the best of what we have. His goodness is compelling. Number two, God's spiritual leaders are infecting, not infected, infecting. They are contributing to the welfare of the nation. So we must look to them for integrity of life and faithful instruction. Thirdly, God's presence is refining so we can react with genuine awe. He's going to purify us in that process. And lastly, God's character is unchanging. So we should respond with determined and generous trust. So that's the preparation of the book of Malachi. I hope you have a sense for how they were feeling, where they are in history. But now let's take a look at the first five verses. This is our portion today. And the one thing I hope you take home from this time today is the fact that God loves us greatly and he's proven it with his covenant so let's take a look at this verses one through five the oracle which means burden gravitas heaviness of the word of the lord to israel by malachi i have loved you says the lord but you say how have you loved us god's response is is not esau jacob's brother isn't that an interesting response that was 1,400 years earlier. Isn't Esau Jacob's brother? What would you say as an answer to that? What is the answer to that question? Yeah, yeah, they're brothers. In fact, they're twins, kind of. They were born around the same time. God declares this, yet he says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. This is where most of us get stuck, by the way, at this part. How could God hate a person doesn't he just hate sin 
But God is very clear here. I love Jacob. I hated Esau. I have laid waste his hill country. This is the country of Edom. And I've left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. What an awful label for a nation. Wicked country. Angry with them forever. And then he says in verse 5, your, your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. You're going to see this, and it's going to move your hearts. And I want you to notice that despite Israel's bland faith, backwater ardency toward God, despite that, this conversation begins where? The love of God. I have loved you. Contrary to all, a lot of the other prophets where he starts out with the condemnation for their behavior, he starts out here and he says, I have loved you. But the people were having none of it. And you notice in verse 2, they say, well, how or in what way have you loved us? In other words, in the Hebrew, it says, we don't see that around us today. Life is hard. Circumstances are bad. We're in pain. We're in trouble. We're under Persia's heel. How have you loved us today? So don't tell us you love us right now. We're not buying it. How easy it is to look at our current circumstances, our struggles, our pains, our problems, and blame God for not intervening fast enough. You ever felt that way? God, where are you? I need help now. Do you really love me? Where's your presence? And it's easy to forget that God's timetable for us is not our timetable. And it's also easy to forget the fact that God often uses our struggles and our pain and our problems to refine us and to strengthen us. So what they were missing was the long view, remembering that God had already done great things for them. And by the way, this is why God goes back 1,400 years to Jacob and Esau, the very beginning of the Jewish nation with the 12 tribes. So Malachi points out two things, two very significant deep-seated factors that he wants to address in this book. Number one is he says, Folks, you have, you have ceased feeling awed by God and impressed by his works. You failed to, to feel that sense of history. John McKay, one of the commentators this week, said they could not see what they already had. All they knew was they didn't have all they wanted. And unfortunately, what they wanted was defined in increasingly worldly terms. The second thing he wants them to see is that their religious experience has become institutionalized. It's formal, it's sterile. And John goes on to say this in his commentary, as long as the outward rites and ceremonies were performed, they were satisfied and they thought well of themselves. They offered the sacrifices, they professed repentance, they came before the Lord with vows, but at no point in this prophecy is there any hint that their religion went deeper than that or that they engaged in self-criticism or humble personal evaluation. If things were not as they expected, it had to be God's fault. And they thought that their behavior might have affected the situation. The thought that it might have affected it never crossed their minds. Folks, in many ways, this is American Christianity today, embedded in the American culture. 
we see this in a variety of ways, but this week there was an article the Wall Street Journal carried on the first that interestingly, even though they didn't use the, the book of Malachi, lined up the perspective of Malachi to American Christians today. Let me just quote briefly from it. It's, it's called, Why Middle-Aged Americans Aren't Coming Back to Church. They write, according to Gallup, church attendance levels have been declining for decades across generations with less than half of U.S. adults belonging to houses of worship in 2020. Less than half. Compared with 70% in 1999. But during the, pandem during the pandemic, many more got out of the habit of going regularly to religious services and, and they didn't resume. Sure, they write, people remain on membership rolls, but they've stopped volunteering. Others have stopped coming because of personal dislike for the biblical teaching about divorce or gay marriage or living out of wedlock or women pastors, and they're purposely choosing not to hear those sermons. In many cases, they continue making donations, but only until the credit card expires. That, that was interesting. If asked, they continue to describe themselves as Protestant, Jewish, or any other denomination, and he says, it's not like they're walking away saying, I'm now an atheist and I don't believe. They still believe in a God and live life with purpose, but they are done with the institutional church. They quit quietly. So just like in Malachi's day, we are seeing uh, a sense of apathy or discontent or dislike of biblical truth and, and frustration with formal formality that's empty of transformative power in the presence of God. So what's the cure? Malachi 1, 1 through 5 tells us it is to remember the incredible love of God. That's our takeaway this morning. So Malachi unshelves one of their history books, turns the pages back to Genesis 25, and begins to tell them the story again of Jacob and Esau. And in doing so, Going back these 1,400 years, he wants to remind them of God's covenant relationship with Jacob. And you remember the story that when Rebekah is pregnant, she has two children in her womb, and as they are being born, who comes out first? Esau. And good old heel grabber Jacob gets a hold of his brother's ankle and is hauled out afterwards. But God says in Genesis 25, before either of them was born, I choose Jacob. Before they'd ever done anything right or wrong, God's sovereign will says, this is the son who is going to become the father of the 12 tribes, who will become the ancestor of the people of Israel, who will be my chosen servant before this birth ever occurs. That was completely backward in that day. The firstborn always had the birthright, always had the blessing, but God flips the tables on it. It's kind of like a middle school captain of a pickup uh, baseball game during recess, and he's got all those students in front of him, and the two captains are going to be picking, and his first choice is a student who's on the autism spectrum, even though right next to him is the star shortstop for the team. He says, that's the one I'm picking. And as we look at this story it is countercultural, but it's also not an emotional reaction to Esau, because Esau's done nothing yet. It's this, this, this sovereign choice of God. But we also know at this point in the story that Esau's life 
has ended, and his history, his story has been passed down to these people. And so as they listen to this, and they hear God say, I love Jacob, Esau I hated, they see sovereign choice, not so much as an emotional statement, I really hated Esau, but in comparison, he's not choosing him, so it is this sense of rejection. They understand that, but they also look at Esau's life. And what happened after that? We know that Esau threw away his birthright like an old black banana peel. Just had no value for him. They also knew that his entire life he was at enmity with Jacob. And they knew firsthand how his descendants, the nation of Edom, had treated them with burning resentment when their city was overthrown by Babylon. If you go to the book of Obadiah, one chapter, but... Four verses describe Esau's descendants and why God had a right to hate Esau by sovereign will, but also by Esau's will and his people. Obadiah 10 says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So when Babylon finally conquered Jerusalem, were slaughtering the populace, sacking the city, Edom was there applauding. In fact, participating with them in the overthrow of Jerusalem. Because it goes on to say, you were like one of them. But then Obadiah says, don't gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Don't rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Don't boast in the day of their distress. Don't enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't gloat over his disaster in the way of his calamity. Don't loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. But that's exactly what Edom did. Because Psalm 137 tells us they did all of those things. In fact, even shouting aloud as Jerusalem is falling, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. These people in Malachi's day knew the history of Esau and of Edom. And it made sense to them when God said, I loved Jacob and Esau I hated. But here's the interesting thing too. Because of his choice of Jacob, God treated their sins differently. Would we say that Israel was perfect? Had they never sinned? Had they ever rebelled against God? Of course they did. That's their history. You can look at it in all of the prophets. But God treats them differently than he treats Esau with Esau's sins and Edom's sins. So that Esau is completely thrown out, completely destroyed, overturned. In fact, if you've ever gone to the city of Petra, anybody been to Petra? And some of you have to Israel. Have you ever watched Indiana Jones? You know, in that, that opening scene where they come into that beautiful rock formation. That was created by the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans took it from Edom. And they destroyed Edom. And it became, later on, just a non-existent nation. So God's treatment of these two nations are very, very different. When Israel goes into captivity, God doesn't leave them there. He brings them back to the land. And he reestablishes them there. And they build their temple. And they ultimately build the walls of Jerusalem. And they are re-begun as a nation. 
So for the Jewish people, until they, they recognized the grace and the love and the goodness of God, it was easy to say in the present, God, how have you loved us? And the same is true for us. Folks, until we look to the past and see the great way that God has loved us in the covenant that he has made with us, until we do that, it's going to be very easy to make the statement in the moment of our circumstances and struggles, God, how do you love me today? And so God calls us to look to the past. In fact, we're going to end the service here in just a minute or two, wrapping up by looking back in our history almost 2,000 years ago to when God made a covenant with us at the cross. We're going to be celebrating communion together, and we're going to purposely reflect on that moment of history and how it changes our lives today. So I want to prompt you with a video this morning. It's called Remember Me. It's going to begin to prepare our hearts for communion that we're going to take in just a moment. And by the way, if you haven't been able to get a hold of a, a communion cup, there are some down here, there's some in the back. During the video would be a great time to do that. Just make sure that you don't trip over anybody going one direction or the other in the dark. But as you watch the video, let me ask you to do this. Would you reflect on how God has loved you in the past, in the covenant, created at the cross? How has God loved you in that moment? He loved you enough to die in your place, to take your sins on himself, to give you a clean slate, wipe away all of your sins, throw them into the deepest sea as far as the east is from the west. God has done that for us. He's offered us his daily presence in the Holy Spirit. He gives us victory in life. He gives us community as a family. He's given us an eternity. Look back to that moment and just think, God, how have you loved me? Not because I deserved it. My sins are many. But because you chose us to be your family.